Micah chapter 5, as we continue our study through this prophecy, we're now in the last half of what has turned out to be a really awesome chapter of the Bible that I didn't know that much about until I started studying it, and getting to see all the neat things in this chapter has been great for me. Let's begin, we'll read verses 7 through 9 before we move on. And the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many people as a dew from the Lord, as the showers upon the grass that tarrieth not for man, nor waiteth for the sons of men. And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the Gentiles in the midst of many people, as a lion among the beasts of the forest, as a young lion among the flocks of of sheep, who if he go through, both treadeth down and teareth in pieces, and none can deliver. Thine hand shall be lifted up upon thine adversaries, and all thine enemies shall be cut off. We've already considered these verses the last couple of weeks, but we've seen how God would take a remnant from among the children of Jacob to spread the gospel, begin that process of spreading the gospel throughout the world. They went forth preaching deliverance in Christ. Remember that the end of verse 4, it tells us that Christ would be great unto the ends of the earth. Today we can see how from a small group of 12 people, the gospel has gone to the ends of the earth. Now, I don't know how much further it has to go. Jesus said once it's gone all the way around, he was going to finish it all. And so we've got to be close. Amen. I mean, we've got to be close. The gospel has gone around the world, and Jesus said once it's done that, then the end shall be. And so he's just gracious giving people time to be saved. We considered the contrast in verses 7 and 8 last week. Uh, To some, the message of Christ would be as the dew and the nourishing rain. But to others, the message of Christ would be as a lion treading down and tearing in pieces none can deliver. Um, In verse 7, there's deliverance for those who will receive Christ. But in verse 8, there will be no deliverance for those who reject Christ. We saw last week in verse 9 that the enemies of Christ will be dealt with. It may be in our lifetime... Let me rephrase that. It may be in their lifetime when God deals with them. It may be after their life. And Asaph was puzzled by that, wasn't he? Over there in Psalms, and he said, you know, when I look at the wicked and I see how prosperous they are, I'm wondering what in the world am I doing? Until I went into the sanctuary, then I understood their end, he said. And so sometimes we look at the wicked and we think, what's God up to? Listen, God's going to deal with them. We may see that manifested in this life, but certainly in the life to come. Um, God is going to take care, and He'll be the judge. And so we saw that they will be dealt with. Those who receive Christ will be with Him for all eternity. Those who reject Christ will be without God for all eternity in a place called the lake of fire. The Bible says this is the second death. And we've now been entrusted with the message of deliverance. That's our job as Christians. We are to preach the gospel. Amen. We are to go into the world just as that remnant went. We now, as strangers and pilgrims in a foreign land, are to go and preach deliverance in Christ. Uh, We can't affect the outcome. The Holy Spirit has to work in the heart and they have to make the decision. But we must be faithful to tell the message. They'll receive it or reject it. But those who refuse, the Bible says, they will be cut off. And we know Jesus is going to be victorious when all is said and done. Amen? And the truth is, He's already victorious. 
And so that may sound kind of wrong to say, but uh, he will be victorious in the end. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And, and here's the deal. You can bow your knee this side of eternity. Go ahead and serve the Lord and love the Lord and be born again. But if you don't, on the other side of eternity, if, that's probably not the best word. Is there another side of eternity? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> either way, you'll bow the knee and you'll confess. Um, now, let's move on to verses 10 through 15. That was all recap to get me back in the frame of mind. Um, that was all for me, not for you. All right. <laughs> verses 10 through 15. And it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord, that I will cut off thy horses out of the midst of thee, and I will destroy thy chariots, and I will cut off the cities of thy land, and throw down all thy strongholds, and I will cut off witchcrafts out of thine hand, and thou shalt have no more soothsayers. Thy graven images also will I cut off, and thy standing images out of the midst of thee. And thou shalt no more worship the work of thine hands. And I will pluck up the groves out of the midst of thee, so will I destroy thy cities. And I will execute vengeance in anger and fury upon the heathen, such as they have not heard. Verse 10 begins by saying, And it shall come to pass in that day. The question we must ask ourselves in seeking to rightly divide the word of God what is that day? There are generally three thoughts when it comes to this and this particular set of verses. One is, that day is speaking of the time of the Babylonian captivity up to the time of Christ. Another is that it's speaking of the times of Christ through the days in which we live. And then finally, that this would be speaking about the time that's at the end of this age. I'm going to give you my opinion. We can make application from all three areas for sure. Portions of this definitely took place when the Babylonians came in and took Judah captive. There's no question about that. As we look at some things that were cut off, that did take place during the Babylonians. I think spiritually speaking, we can make application for sure in the days in which we live. And verse 15 to me sure sounds an awful lot like the end of this age when Jesus is going to just take care of everything and all the enemies will be uh, dealt with. So I can see where there's these different opinions here. I personally, I see a continuation of the flow of thoughts that we have beginning all the way up there in verse 2 when Christ would be born in Judah. And we have the ministry of Christ in verses 4 and 5. And then we see a transition to the church age, if you will, after Christ's earthly ministry. Because we see this remnant and they're taking the gospel into the world. And the nations would receive God's word in verses 7 through 9. And according to verse 3, this remnant that we are talking about here, it began after Christ. Birth. So in context, when verse 10 says, and it shall come to pass in that day, I can personally see that day referring to the day when the remnant went forth. However, <laughs> amen, politician time, in verse, if verse 9 is speaking of Christ's final victory, or verse 15 is speaking of Christ's final victory when all His enemies are cut off for good, I can certainly see how one would conclude that that day in verse 10 is when Christ will put down all rule and authority and all the nations will become His and He'll reign forever and ever. Now, the problem I see, I, I think that may be the flow, and I think verse 15 may actually just kind of cap the end of, uh, of the church time 
and bring us into the end of the age. But I think the verses leading up to verse 15, the, the, what I see is all of that's happened to Israel in the past. It, it has taken place. Uh, like I said, certainly when they were taken captive by the Babylonians, they, they saw all of these things that God said I would do happen to them. But it, it didn't just happen then. There was a time after Christ ascended back to glory in A.D. 70 when Jerusalem was uh, completely defeated and overthrown when the Romans came in. And verse 15, it talks about His execution of His anger and fury, such as they have not heard. You know, Luke 19, verses 43 and 44, Jesus said, For the days shall come upon thee, He's speaking about Jerusalem, the days will come upon thee that thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee and compass thee round and keep thee in on every side and shall lay thee even with the ground and thy children within thee. They shall not leave in thee one stone upon another because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. That's pretty severe fury. Not one stone upon another. Cast down with your children in there. Luke 21, 23, and 24, Jesus said, But woe unto them that are with child, and to them that give suck in those days. For there shall be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people, and they shall fall by the edge of the sword, and shall be led away captive into all nations. Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. And so we're, we're seeing that in our day. After A.D. 70, they were scattered throughout the world, and it wasn't until recently that they have had their own nation again. And so until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled, you look at the Jerusalem skyline, and uh, there's the mosque, there's the Dome of the Rock, there's the Muslim sites right there on what used to be the Temple Mount. It is being trodden down of the Gentiles. Now, what happened to them was such as they had not heard. And it's a reminder for us. It was a total destruction by God using the Romans in his hand, in his power to trod them down. Daniel was told in Daniel 9.26, After three score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off. That's his crucifixion. But not for himself. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be with a flood. And unto the end of the war, desolations are determined. And so I believe um, we see that today. Now, there's another passage that we can turn to. When we try to identify that day in verse 10, then we could look at, we could look at a lot of verses, but I'm just going to kind of take one passage here to try to piece together when this timing is. These verses here, this set of verses, they're talking about God cutting out of them what needs to be removed. And in verses 12 through 14, you see God says, I'm, I'm going to take your idolatry out of you. I don't want you trusting in false gods. Amen. And I'm going to take that away. And we see that today. There, there, there is no false gods uh, in the sense of bowing down to idols and teraphims and Molech and, and Rephidim, all these things we saw in the Old Testament. We don't see that today in Israel. Um, and yet, here we see God said, I'm going to take that out of you. I'm, I'm going to cut it off. And, and when we try to identify that day, I want you to listen to Zechariah chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. And I know some people disagree with me on the timing of this, but listen to what it says. In that day there shall be a fountain open to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. 
And it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord of hosts, that I will cut off the names of the idols out of the land, and they shall no more be remembered. And also I will cause the prophets and the unclean spirit to pass out of the land. It is my opinion in Zechariah 13 and in verse 1 that when the fountain was open, that fountain is the Lord Jesus Christ. For uncleanness and sin, there is a fountain filled with blood, drawn from Emmanuel's veins. Sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. And so this fountain was opened up when? In that day. And then it goes on to say there that in that day I will cut off the names of the idols out of the land. And that's what we find uh, here in Micah chapter 5. Especially, let me see here, verse 13. Thy graven images also will I cut off. And what's the context? Verse 10, in that day. So to me personally, I think it lines up perfect with Micah's prophecy. Therefore, it is my personal opinion as we're going through Micah now, but in 30 years from now, that may change. But I see that day as being the day of Christ in which we live. This appears to be the natural flow of the events here in Micah chapter 5. Now, believe it or not, my intent this morning isn't to establish exactly what that day is. Um, You're smart people. You can study and you can come to your own conclusion. And you're free to agree or disagree. But what I do want to do is take these verses here and I want to apply them to to us today. I want to take these and I want it to, to see why is this important for us? What is this about being cut off. And, and listen, we'll, we'll talk about Israel as we go as well, but in these verses, there's a reoccurring phrase, and it shows up in every verse, verses 10 through 15. It, there's I will and will I. And God's saying, these are the things I'm going to do. I will do this and will I do this. God is going to, to bring some stuff to pass. He says, I will cut off thy horses. I will destroy thy chariots. I will cut off the cities. I will cut off witchcrafts. Thy graven images will I cut off. I will pluck up thy groves. So will I destroy thy cities. And I will execute vengeance. And so there's a lot of God doing stuff here. Also of interest to me is that in verses 7 and 8, while the remnant of Jacob is going to be in the midst of many people, would you notice that in these verses here, God is doing a work in their midst. So they're going to be doing a work in the midst of the Gentiles. And then God's going to be doing a work within them. Uh, Verses 10, 13, and 14 all mention how God is removing things out of their midst. And I believe the lesson for us, get this now, is that God will work in our lives to remove the things that are hindering us in fully trusting in Him. God goes to the operating room And He begins to perform surgery on us. And especially in the context of getting the gospel out, God's going to make sure, listen, your efforts are not what it is that's saving somebody. I'm the one that does the saving, God says. Now, He's told us to go and we're to to be obedient. And and we are to, to stay with the Great Commission. We understand that. But it is God who does the work. And so God says, I'm going to cut this out. I'm going to get this stuff out of you. You need to learn to fully trust me. He wants us to fully trust him, lean not unto our own understanding. He wants us to learn that the work of the ministry is his work. Amen. Amen. Listen, we're just instruments in his hand. And and he he does all the, the unseen work. 
The Bible says, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. What we do for Him must be by His strength. We have to learn to get out of His way. That can be hard to do sometimes. But for this to happen, God will have to perform surgery on us. He's got to cut some things out that we are looking to for our security and our blessings. God says, i got to have it because I've got to get all the glory. You say, well, that's not very fair. Well, when you're God, you can decide who gets the glory. Amen? The Psalms, they speak extensively about us learning to put our trust in the Lord. We are told that we will be blessed if we put our trust in Him. We are saved and delivered if we put our trust in Him. He is our buckler and our shield when we put our trust in Him. We will dwell in the land and be well fed if we trust in Him. The Lord helps those who trust in Him. And we could keep listing all the advantages just from Psalms where God says, if you trust in me, this is what you'll have and this is what I'll do. Psalm 118, 8 and 9. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put your confidence in man. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. Amen. Don't put your confidence in the political realm. Ha! Amen. That's, that's where you start really preaching. Amen. Ha! Amen. Don't put your trust up in the preacher. Don't put your trust in men. But you put your trust in God. Preachers will come and go. Presidents will come and go. We'll, have, we'll ride this scale the rest of the time till the Lord comes back. It's going to be one way and then another way. But you put your trust in the Lord because He will never fail you. He never changes. Amen. We know what we have in Christ. Thank God we have the Word of God. What a blessing. All right, I'm trying not to preach, but it's kind of felt like it's been a while. I don't know. Listen, blessed is the man that maketh the Lord his trust. I don't think I have to convince you that if you'll put your trust in the Lord, you'll be blessed. I don't think in a Sunday school crowd I would have to convince you of that. As God's children having trusted Him for full salvation in Christ alone, we ought to understand that after salvation, we are to continue to trust in Him. We don't just trust in Him for being saved, but we keep trusting in Him as He works in us, as He performs this surgery, as He sanctifies. And so we we continue to trust, and if we'll do that, surely goodness and mercy shall follow us all the days of our life. Whoop. And so we find that God is going to do a great work through us as we do a work in the midst of many people. And then we must allow Him to get the glory. God is not going to share His glory with anybody else. He's not going to give it to another, the Bible says. Some things that we find ourselves trusting in, it could be downright sinful. Right? Some people trust in a, an addiction to help them through. Sinful habits. Some people trust in things that aren't necessarily sinful, but God says you've got to get rid of that because, listen, I'm not first and foremost in your life and you're not trusting me. We'll see both of these in these passages. So with that, let's get back to our text. The first thing we see mentioned in verse 10 is that God will cut off their horses out of their midst and He will destroy their chariots. This refers, I believe, to the children of Israel not trusting in their military might. Horses and chariots in those days were the weapon of choice. God says, I don't want you trusting in those things. 
but you need to trust in me. Once a nation had acquired an abundance of horses and chariots, that was the equivalent to being considered a superpower in their day. God had already shown the children of Israel when He brought them out of Egypt that all they needed to do was trust in Him. Remember when Pharaoh finally lets the people go. He immediately said, Why have we done this? That we have let Israel go from serving us. So what did He do to try to get them back? The Bible says in Exodus 14, 6-9, And He made ready His chariot and took his people with him. And he took 600 chosen chariots, and all the chariots of Egypt, and captains over every one of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he pursued after the children of Israel. And the children of Israel went out with an high hand, but the Egyptians pursued after them all the horses and chariots of Pharaoh, and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them in camping by the sea." God was about to teach Israel a very valuable lesson. Here comes the mightiest nation bearing down upon this once enslaved people. And as they're approaching, these folks have come out of Egypt. They spoiled the Egyptians. They've, they've taken goods. But listen, these are not people of war. Amen. These are colonialists, okay? These are not people of war. They don't have weaponry. They don't have horses. They don't have chariots. They don't have bows and arrows. They don't have swords. What are they going to do? God's going to teach them an important lesson. As the Egyptian army closed in, Moses said in Exodus 14, 13 and 14, Fear ye not, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he He will show you today. For the Egyptians whom ye have seen today, ye shall see them again no more forever. Listen to this next phrase. The Lord shall fight for you. (laughs) That's pretty good. Ye shall hold your peace. God said, I don't need you for this. I'm going to fight for you. Further on in Exodus chapter 14, God said in verses 17 and 18, And I, behold, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians, and they shall follow them. And I will get me honor upon Pharaoh and upon all his host, upon his chariots and upon his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. When I have gotten me honor upon Pharaoh, upon his chariots, and upon his horsemen. And then in Exodus 14, 24 and 25 we read, And it came to pass that in the morning watch the Lord looked unto the host of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and of the cloud and troubled the host of the Egyptians. (laughs) This is so good. Listen to what God did. And took off their chariot wheels. (laughs) That's awesome. Uh, That they drave them heavily. So that the Egyptians said, let us flee from the face of Israel. Listen to what the Egyptians said. For the Lord fighteth for them against the Egyptians. Wow. You know, God delights in our weakness because He gets the glory. Even the Egyptians had to admit the Lord's fighting for them. All the military might of Egypt's horses and chariots, they were no match against God. And as you know, God drowned the Egyptian military there in the sea. God was teaching Israel a lesson that they didn't need military might to prevail. Not when God was on their side. 
at the close of Exodus chapter 14, it says, Israel saw the Egyptians dead upon the seashore. And Israel saw the great work which the Lord did upon the Egyptians. Boy, what an object lesson. Like I said, God was teaching them, listen, don't you trust in those things. You trust in me. You don't need human intervention. But you need me to be on your side. And listen, this principle has been proven throughout history. It's not just unique to Exodus 14. This was true when our nation was founded. The greatest military the world had ever known in the British Empire. Coming against a bunch of ragtag, bunch of farmers and colonialists. There's no way. There's, there's no way they could win. But they did. Why? It wasn't by their might. God's intervention. God fighting on behalf of His people. And now, we have become the world's greatest military power. I can't remember the exact quote, but when I was stationed up in North Dakota, they used to say that if North Dakota, or if Minot would become its own nation, just the base alone would be the fourth most powerful nation in the earth. That's amazing. But we better not place our trust in our military might above trusting God. We have an object lesson today. We have Afghanistan. A people with no uniform. And yet, look what's happening. Now, I know politics are involved. Don't get me started. Amen. I miss the days of strong generals that say you go in there and you blast the whole thing out. But that aside, it's still true. Don't trust in military might. Thank God for it. But we had better be good stewards of it. We've been blessed by God. And listen, this is true as a nation, but this can be true to you as individuals. When God blesses a people, the temptation of that people are to forsake the God who blessed them. This is what we're witnessing in America today. Deuteronomy 6, 10-12 says, And it shall be when the Lord thy God shall have brought thee into the land which he sware unto thy fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give thee great and goodly cities which thou buildest not, and houses full of all good things which thou fillest not, and wells digged which thou diggest not, vineyards and olive trees which thou plantest not. All these blessings God is going to give them, right? When thou shalt have eaten and be full, then beware lest thou forget the Lord, which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. God says, I'm going to bless you, but listen, you better be careful because when you're blessed, you're going to be tempted to say, man, look at what all we've done. There's several other passages there in Deuteronomy we could look at, but there are plenty of, of warnings against thinking we are the ones responsible for our blessings. The New Testament tells us their history, Israel's history, was written for our admonition. And what's happened to them is now happening to us. Egypt, they excelled in their military might with all of their horses and their chariots. But when God defeated them, He was teaching Israel, don't you look to those things for your trust. 
He didn't want Israel in time to go back to Egypt in their mind and adopt their practices as the basis of their success. He didn't want them acquiring horses and chariots that they would end up putting their trust in those things. And so God warned the children of Israel in Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 through 16, When thou art come unto the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, and shalt possess it, and shalt dwell therein, and shalt say, I will set a king over me like as all the nations that are about me, thou shalt in any wise set him king over thee, whom the Lord thy God shall choose. One from among thy brethren shalt thou set king over thee, that thou mayest not set a stranger over thee, which is not thy brother. Now listen to what he says. But he shall not multiply horses to himself, nor cause thy people to return to Egypt to the end that he should multiply horses. For as much as the Lord has said unto you, ye shall henceforth return no more to that way. I said, I don't want you going back to that way. Don't you look at the other worlds and the other nations and look at their military might and think, that's what we've got to do. God said, I don't want you doing that. But you had better trust in me. God had already shown them at the Red Sea, this is what I'm capable of. I can take an entire army of horses and chariots and I can take off their wheels. Whoop. I can drown them in the sea if I so choose. This is why throughout the Old Testament, you'll read this phrase time and time again, over and over. Remember the Lord thy God which brought thee out of the land of Egypt. God, I don't know how many times. It's, it's throughout I want you to remember that day. I want you to remember when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. I took care of you. I fought for you. Listen, the military might of Egypt was no match for me. And God always tells them, remember that day. Stop trusting in all these things. Stop trusting in your false gods. But remember how God delivered you. By the way, that's true in our salvation. God delivered us in His power. And he was saying, you need to learn to trust me. I got this. I got this. You say, well, you don't understand what's going on in the world today. Yeah, no, I do. God says, I'm in control. You can trust me. Oh, boy, I feel like preaching right there. Remember the day of your deliverance. If God could save you without you doing a thing, he can take care of you now. Stop trusting in horses and chariots. When you were helpless, God fought for you. That's good. For when ye were yet without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. I mean, what, what a blessing. God commendeth His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And as the children of Israel went into the land and began the wars of Canaan, God fought for them. Twice in Joshua chapter 10, it states how the Lord fought for Israel. In Joshua chapter 11, several kings had unified together to come and fight against the children of Israel. And Joshua 11.4 says, And they went out, they and all their hosts with them, much people, even as the sand that is upon the seashore in multitude, with horses and chariots, very many. When these unified nations came, they came with their military might. Joshua 11.6 And the Lord said unto Joshua, Be not afraid because of them, for tomorrow about this time will I deliver them all up slain before Israel. Thou shalt hawk their horses and burn their chariots with fire. 
I'm going to give you victory, but you better take their military might and destroy it. God did as He said. Israel smote them and chased after them until there were none left remaining. And then in Joshua 11.9, And Joshua did unto them as the Lord bade him. He hocked their horses and burnt their chariots with fire. God once again reminded them, Don't you trust in horses and chariots. I brought you out of Egypt. He commanded them, burn their chariots and hock their horses. If, if I understand that correctly, I, I had to look it up. So if I understand this correctly, it means that you cut the, the sinew behind the hoof, the hocks, as they're called. And what that does is it renders a horse useless. It doesn't kill the horse, but you can't use it. In time, David became the king over Israel. In 2 Samuel 8 and 1 Chronicles 18, it's the same battle. They both say the same thing. David hawked all the chariot horses. And David would pin these words in Psalm 20, verses 7 and 8. Some trust in chariots. And some in horses. But we will remember the name of the Lord our God. They are brought down and fallen. But we are risen and stand upright. Super. But then came Solomon. Second Chronicles 1.14 says, And Solomon gathered chariots and horsemen. He had a thousand and four hundred chariots. And from another passage we learned that he had 40,000 horses for all his chariots. A shift began to take place under Solomon's rule. All his wives turned his heart from following after God. The high places were built. The groves were planted. The offerings to false gods were taking place. He was beginning to trust in horses and chariots. Isaiah 31.1 Woe to them that go down to Egypt for help and stay on horses and trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong. But they look not unto the Holy One of Israel, neither seek the Lord. What was taking place in Isaiah's day? Israel now had gotten to the point where not only did they multiply horses and chariots, but they were looking to other nations for their help. They were going down trying to make allegiance with Egypt. They were making an allegiance with Assyria. They were making all these pacts with these other nations around them to help them when the enemy would come against them. And God said, you better stop doing that. Stop looking to Egypt. They were guilty of violating Deuteronomy 17, 16, which I read earlier. They went the way of Egypt. They multiplied horses. They trusted in those things and they forsook God. But God says in Micah 5.10, I will cut off thy horses, and I will destroy thy chariots. Psalm 33, 16-18 says, There is no king saved by the multitude of an host. A mighty man is not delivered by much strength. A horse is a vain thing for safety. Neither shall he deliver any by his great strength. Behold, the eye of the Lord is upon them that fear him, upon them that hope in his mercy. Let me just make application to us as, as we stop. We've talked about this issue of trusting in horses and chariots on a national level, but what about you personally? 
Whose strength are you trusting in today? Are you trusting in God's strength or are you trusting in your own strength? Some people say, I don't understand why I keep going through this. It could be. Listen, it, it could just be your job, okay? But it could be. God's trying to say, I've got some things that you, I need to remove from your life because you're trusting in those. And so God brings these problems and He brings these, listen, He brings these circumstances into your life and He says, I need you to trust in me. Yes, and it's got to eventually be things that we have absolutely no control over. That's right. Where we can't go sign a piece of paper and get a loan, where we can't do this, where we, we can't take a pill and we can't, listen, God's going to bring us into places where He says, are you ready to trust in me? God just might be trying to get you focused upon Him and trusting in Him. And so God is performing surgery upon your life. He wants to remove that which is your strength. Whenever your strength is not in God alone, God takes note. God said, I will cut off. And it may be painful sometimes as we go through things but it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Let Him have full control in your life. Trust only in Him. Now, we're going to see more of this thought as we continue through this chapter. But whatever your strength is this morning, I pray that it's in God Almighty. Let's pray and we'll be dismissed before the morning service at 11.